Hi, and welcome back to the Leasing Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew and Dave of the IB English Guys. 2023 saw the first rollout of the IBDP English A Courses Paper 2. As such, teachers across the world rallied to prepare students for a comparative literature essay that featured unseen prompts and the opportunity to select from any of the study texts across their two years of study. I was keen to chat with Andrew and Dave as they have been a fantastic point of contact on relevant IB teaching forums and, of course, across all their content on YouTube. Additionally, both of the guys were examiners for paper two this year and had access to extended conversations with the principal examiner regarding expectations for students' responses. We discussed since the last time we spoke something new Dave and Andrew have taught or would like to teach in the coming year, whether this year's paper two and its focus on thematic prompts is a sign of things to come, the observation that students fared better if they stayed out of sentence level analysis and instead aimed at broad authorial choices, how to write conclusions in a meaningful manner, what the telltale signs are that an essay has been learnt and therefore forced onto a question provided, and finally, what we should all be doing a bit more of on a formative assessment level to prepare students for this paper. Thanks again to the guys for being so generous with their time, as well as the practical advice gleaned from reading hundreds of responses and consolidating what they believe to be best practice for a demanding exam. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, uh, Andy and Dave, um, since the last time we spoke about, I don't know, 12 months ago, 16 months ago, what's something new that you've taught uh, as part of the course or what you would like to teach that you're thinking about teaching in the coming year or years? Yes, thanks so much, Chris. We're uh, super happy to uh, to chat with you and, and share some ideas. So uh, one of the more recent works that we've taught this year is Antigone. Um, really uh, enjoyed getting into, uh, you know, obviously a text in translation, but an ancient Greek tragedy. And uh, the kids were super receptive to it. We had some really rich discussions. And um, that was kind of what we led off with this fall. And that was something that both Andrew and I really enjoyed. Yeah. Another thing that we're thinking about is... Uh... Actually, Dave and I are thinking about reviving the Great Gatsby. We see a lot of good conversations around materialism and wealth uh, and, and sort of taking that 1920s story and applying it to, you know, 2023, 2024, looking for parallels. And we've also, uh, in collaboration with a friend over in California, Rene Romero, we've been thinking a lot about the poetry of Ocean, Ocean Buong and really thinking about uh, some of his messages and getting more representation into our classroom. Yeah, um, I, I start with Antigone, funnily enough. Yeah, that's always the first text that I start with. I think it like it ticks so many boxes in terms of that Venn diagram of, you know, in translation and obviously kind of the time period, but not to be too cynical. The kids always buy into it. I think there's just something, um, you know, certain, certain students really sympathize with Creon, others really sympathize with Antigone, and obviously the more sophisticated response probably means that you should be somewhere in the middle, but it is it is such a good text. And it's a really good text, I find, to pair with rhetorical, non, 
literary or non-literature bodies of work if you know what i mean so like george bush and stuff like that it's quite a nice crossover so there's some uh lovely suggestions chaps thanks um uh, oh, sorry chris one thing mm -hmm. to add we had some fun integrating ethical dilemmas into that unit as well uh, thinking about the different ethics ethical dilemmas that these characters face and then posing a sort of a modern equivalent to what those characters go through we got a lot of buy-in from kids and they seem to really really go for that text yeah it's like it, it's it really easy text to link with tok i find as well i've sort of like tried to um bring a bit more of that into my practice this year which i've always kind of struggled to do as a non-tok teacher but yeah the ethical considerations are great um so this year speaking this year we are now 2023 um recording in october and this is sort of the, the first year that we had a paper two in the new iteration of the course due to COVID and and, and all those bleak times that are thankfully touch wood behind us. Um, what surprised me is that each of the questions in in both time zones were what I would describe as like thematically focused, I suppose. Um, so I think there was one about poverty, one about sort of journey, one about um I can't recall the other two. I should really have done my homework. But, I, you know, I was anticipating there being like maybe a kind of um, a, a technique sort of related question. I think this is a throwback to the old paper too, where you would have poetry, uh, uh, drama or prose to choose from. Do you think this is a sign of things to come that all four questions are going to be quite broad, thematic questions or not? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point that they have to write these questions that correspond to any literary form. So like focusing on a technique is really difficult when you're thinking about you it's got to apply to poetry and drama and and you know prose fiction. That's that's a challenge. So I think you're right that you know I was also surprised that we were looking more thematically uh throughout all the questions and and in a way this class, this course is definitely based on rich ideas. And of course, we talk about global issues in our in our um, assessments. So I, I do think you're right that this might be, you know, this might be, you know, what what they're kind of writing these questions to, to center around. Yeah. Also, if we think about sort of the trajectory and the development of the course over time, you know, we had the old IOC, which was really dependent on that close analysis of literary techniques. But now they've kind of moved over to this idea of global issues and perhaps you know, paper two is the same in a sense where it's not so much the nitty gritty techniques that we want learners to walk away with, but we want them to walk away with thematic importance and understanding how these techniques really are relevant and we can apply these to solve problems in our community and our world. So I actually would be would welcome if this became a permanent shift because I think it's actually better for students, you know, to, to be thinking about these rich ideas. Mm, that's a really that that is that's an interesting point. I I had this kind of um theory that with the Langlet paper ones, I always felt like there was some sort of like sustainable development goal bent to them. There was always, or not for both texts necessarily and not every year, but I always felt like th th there is some kind of IB uh, come United Nations sort of, you know, um, affiliation with it. And I started sort of like mapping the SDGs and the text types against like previous past papers. And there was a lot of crossover and it meant that I sort of made the suggestion to my department that, you know, whenever we're going to develop papers for mock exams at the end of the course or something, let's go out explicitly to find not only just not only a text type, but also a text type that brings in some element of, as you say, like the IB, whether it's the learner profile or whether it's, um, 
you know, global issues or whether it's the SDGs, whatever, you know, affiliation. That is interesting to think about paper two, though, because obviously from a purely literary standpoint, that seems a lot harder to do. But if you are thinking about a theme like poverty, that immediately does go to the heart of like an IB education journeys as well. International mindedness is quite interesting. So that is, yeah, that's a really interesting point to make. Um, Andrew actually posted uh, an interesting reflection on on Facebook once marketing was underway a couple of months ago. And one observation that he made, correct me if I'm wrong, was that students fared better if they stayed out of sentence level analysis and instead aimed at broader authorial choices. Um, this was added to the idea that awareness of genre, so whether it's drama or poetry or prose or whatever, uh, leads to better selection of broad authorial choices. What kind of led you to say that, Andrew? And what, what, what does it look like or sound like in practice? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and let David take that one. I know this uh-huh. is something he believes deeply in, and you know why why the focus on the broad authorial choices and staying out of sort of the sentence level minutia. Yeah, I, I think I think when you look at when you look at the, the a text, you, you want to think about you want to think broadly. What are those choices that the author is is making throughout the text that lead me to that? That rich idea that I'm talking about in my in my argument, instead of worrying about a specific you know quotation and a specific metaphor that's used, actually like zoom out a little bit and think, well, how how does the you know how does he develop or he or she develop the character or how are they how are they using the setting or are they are they looking at you know the use of weather to kind of create a sense of atmosphere overall? I think those kind of broad choices will then help the student answer the question better. Yeah, or if you're thinking about drama, right? Thinking about the stage directions and what can the audience hear? What colors do they see? And just thinking about those bigger choices that are pervasive throughout the entire dramatic experience rather than focusing on page four of act one and looking at you know, Nora's reply to Torvald. I think we want to look wider and really think about you know holistically how is meaning being created. I think, that, I think particularly with paper two being a, um comparison essay i think that is really good like important advice as well um so one example um um of two texts that i've done this year where i feel like the kids are putting them together really well is that at night all blood is black um a lot of them are pairing that with frankenstein for example so this idea of like un un you know um unreliable narrators that's the word or like people who are on the outside or trauma and this kind of thing and they find it very easy to pair you know character with character or setting with setting or um recurring motif um so you could compare like the sort of the fact that the monster always kills the people with a uh, uh he like throttles them so like you've got that horrible kind of like uh fingerprint around the neck and then at night all blood is black he's like you know severed hands and this kind of thing is quite an interesting comparison or, or uh, contrast with the motif my only problem with that is it's well it's not my problem particularly because when we talk about literature at the highest level in university or you know beyond that you obviously aren't doing like quote level analysis you would never hear that on a podcast or very rarely but the question <laughs> i get posed from like um teacher uh, not teachers students would be so do we not need terminology do we not need devices and a lot of kids they really get hung up on devices and we can almost have a laugh about it at the ib level um in terms of you know there's always that typical student who knows every device and wants to include them all 
What's your advice to students in in that regard? How do you still include terminology which paper two calls for without it being, you know, in that very kind of cookie cutter? Um, I need to talk about as many devices as possible. Way. Yeah, maybe uh, in this case you you think about the broad authorial choice as sort of like the umbrella term, right? And so if you want to mm-hmm. look at characterization, for example, and then maybe within that paragraph of characterization, maybe you do want to note a metaphor or a specific example of visual imagery or dialogue. Or dialogue but but yeah. really, it's all focusing back to the way the character is developed. So that's kind of how we work with our students. Is kind of like, okay, yeah, we're not saying don't use the smaller authorial choices, but if you mm-hmm. want to focus on narrative perspective, you know, take those smaller choices and then talk about how they drive and how they influence meaning with respect to narrative perspective. So it's sort of like the umbrella term is the broad term, and then maybe a couple of smaller features could be the supplementary evidence and the, the explanation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, I mean, and I think I think it's it's super important though that we do uh, focus the students on craft and thinking about author choice like that. That when I was examining, I students that only wrote thematic papers where they were comparing ideas did not score well on that criteria B. They just didn't because they were not really focusing on craft, nor were they actually comparing and contrasting author choices, which is a mm-hmm. ch- challenging thing to do, right? So if they just have their eye on, well, how is the author, you know, how is the author developing this particular theme that relates to the question? What what are they doing, you know, in terms of composing this work to to convey that idea? And then how can I, like Andrew said, how can I look at maybe a broad umbrella area, but then drill down a little bit and talk more in a more literary way? Putting we mm-hmm. we like to say, put the author in the driver's seat you know, really talk about the author and what the author is doing, because that as an examiner, I immediately can see that, yes, they're answering this this broad thematic question, but they're also thinking carefully about the choices that the author made. That's a that's a sophisticated way to analyze it. Yeah, piggyback on that with David, you know, like putting the author in the driver's seat. We always tell the kids that, you know, you're not talking about the text, you're talking about how the author makes choices to mm. meaning through the text, right? So that you got to keep that author and his, you know, and their purpose and their their goals in the forefront. Yeah, they've made a choice. They've made a conscious choice. I mean, every kind of English teaching book that you've ever read, I suppose, is like, well, why don't you make the suggestion of taking this word out and changing it with this word? How would that choice kind of affect our understanding or interpretation of it? Do you think that means then, like something that Dave said then kind of uh, provoked me to think, do you think that necessitates students choosing texts in terms of the genre of the text that is relatively similar? So we're not going to see any poetry being compared with prose, for example. I think there's a, a, a decent amount of crossover between drama and, and prose but does that is it even better to sort of say like you're best off looking at how this playwright looks at it and how this playwright looks at it as opposed to mixing up the genres or not yeah great question um i think i guess there's two ways of looking at it one is yeah i think you're right to looking at two dramas and two how two dramatists are exploring a particular idea is is interesting because that's a built-in you can think mm-hmm. about means that they're using in that same genre however like you said I like when kids are taking a novel and comparing it with a drama because it's a built-in difference, right? It's a built-in contrast. You know, one is meant to be, you know, an act of of, of reading. So they're trying to communicate to a reader. And the other mm-hmm. is they're bringing it on stage for us to see and hear and 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 look at. So that that I think is very 
a, a really kind of inherent difference that you can kind of exploit when you're writing your paper, no matter what you're answering. So, but the, and, and third answer to your question is poetry is challenging to try to think about a poem and a, and how a poet is looking at a particular you know theme or idea and then comparing that to a novel when I have to also keep in mind, I have to talk about three different poems probably to show command yeah, of that true. work. Boy, I, that's a task I've, I've, uh, I, I would not yeah, recommend. When I, when I think about the papers that, that I've looked at, you know, I've seen poetry done well several times, but it's typically when, you know, I think about the way that would be taught, you would have to have it almost, the poetry would have to be taught thematically, you know, because the kid's going to need several poems. So if the, if you're, the topic is about, you know, representation and gender equality and you study Duffy, you probably have a handful of poems to look at, you know, mm -hmm. but if you're a teacher who said, you know, I want to look at Langston Hughes and I want to talk about four different themes, uh, you know, through the poetry of Langston Hughes, and maybe you have, you know, these different themes that the poems that match, that's a bit trickier, I think. So I think poetry can serve well, but you really have to be very conscious about how you're offering those poems to the kids. Mm, I do. I, I remember another kind of comment that got made on Facebook or else. I think it might actually just be my partner who said, you know, related to me secondhand. And she said, if you're not doing poetry for the I.O., You've, it's very unlikely that it finds its way into the DP course unless, you know, you, you're doing literature, HL or SL or whatever. For the Langlet course, particularly SL, yeah, it's 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 um, it feels like it's a bit of a victim of the the recent, which which is a shame. But I, I do like the recent course. I'm not I'm not trying to cast aspersions on it or anything. But um, yeah, it's just, it is. It's you're yeah. right though. We're trying to integrate it back into our own curriculum, give poetry more of a platform, because you're right, if it's not leveraged for the I.O., it, it doesn't sometimes make an appearance, right? So we're trying to actually develop more poetry units for, for our kids. Yeah, I remember you guys did Mary Oliver, um, which 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 is really good. I thought about doing that as well with uh, Drive You Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. But again, with, with a lit course, it's so much easier because, you know, you've got nine texts or 13 texts, whatever, and it's it's a lot harder if it's SL and lit, but... Never mind. Um, coming back to something um, that Andrew mentioned before about the kind of paper two links with IB and, and the learner profile and the sort of experience that IB is trying to instill in students. There was also a bit of advice in, in the original post about offering further implications in the conclusion to the paper two. Um, this is something teachers either opt for or like avoid completely in my experience. I think all English teachers teach introductions, conclusions, uh, topic sentences, paragraphs, whatever, slightly differently. Um, some people will, you know, spontaneously combust if there's no signposting in the introduction, whereas other teachers are a bit more laissez-faire. Um, what, what What's the logic for um, doing this in terms of, you know, offering further implications in the conclusion? And yeah. have you got any examples that come to mind? Yeah, I can take that one, Chris. So I'm thinking about some conversations I had with the principal examiner. And it's really when you're trying to differentiate those sixes from the sevens, I think, right? And I think inherently we have a problem with the conclusion of paper two anyway, and the fact that many kids don't actually get there. Uh, and then if they do get there, they write something maybe a bit trite or just rehash what they've already said. Mm -hmm. So sort of the papers that, that sing in marking are the ones that sort of take those whatever their main arguments were from their body paragraphs. And then they, instead of just summarizing those, they they synthesize those. They look for relationships between those ideas and then think, uh, then really link out to the, so what, why does this matter? And those papers to me, 
really ring true as complete papers that have finished the job and have not just compared and contrasted the content and the form, but they've also thought about why it matters. And I know that's a lot to get there. You know, you're, you're racing the clock, but those are the papers that hit seven when I think about my stack of papers. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example, a specific mm-hmm. one that I, I can think of. I, it's it's from a, a chapter in a book that uh, is is a compilation of plays by Atul Fugard, and he they were introducing Seizway Bonzi is dead. It was like a literary uh, criticism, and at the end of that discussion of the play, the the author talked about this this line from the play where he says, "Our skin is trouble," and the way Black South Africans are are treated during the apartheid era. And he, the author linked out and he talked about how much, you know, different groups in the world are marginalized now. We look, you know, we can, and, he, and he gave examples of where we see how people are othered and how people feel like they're isolated by their differences. And I, I just, when I read that, it just resonated like, why are we reading this play from 1972 that's about, you know, a, a, another era? Well, it's really about a much deeper thing. And I, to me, that, it always like stuck out like that author really understands the sort yeah. of how this play resonates. And then they were able to like think outside and draw some examples of yeah, you know, modern it, day. It just rings as a complete response where they've taken the question and said, and by the way, you know, I care about this course and I do care about humanity and all mm-hmm. the things that we want to be thinking about. And this is why it matters. And when you kind of have those couple papers side by side and you're trying to differentiate that, that second paper that, that, gets into that discussion is a, is a stronger paper, Chris. Mm, I think it, like it calls to mind, um, there's a book I'm sure you've heard of before by like some American educationalists called The Writing Revolution. And they talk about how to structure introductions and conclusions. And they, I don't necessarily 100% agree with this, but they had a really nice model for it, which was when you're teaching middle school students, I suppose, maybe primary school students, um, how to structure it. You can start with like a general statement, a specific statement and a thesis statement. So that always, I thought, worked quite well with um, paper two because you need that general statement in terms of what what are we talking about here? Like, what are we writing about? Specific statement, maybe you can show some awareness of, you know, what the audience, uh, what the question is and, and, and um you know, it's implications and then the specific statement, you re- uh, the thesis statement, you've really got to drill down on how it applies to these two texts. And I thought um, what they then advised for the conclusion was almost the opposite, that you would start with the thesis statement and you would go for a specific statement and then a more, a more general statement. And what you're talking about does sound like a general statement. It's like, well, this is a general statement in as much as it applies to the entire world. This is why it's it's relevant. And I can see, I can walk into, um, um, we discussed the kind of, the the, the ideas that you guys um, put on online um, as a class with my year 13 class. Um, not as a thing of like, we agree with all of them, we disagree, or I don't agree with all of them, I disagree with all of them. I sort of said, let's, let's talk them through. You guys write more essays in a week than I do nowadays. So what do you think? And then we I think that is the point that we ended up discussing the most. And I'm 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 happy to say that they're a very high attaining group. And one of them asked, you know, how do I make it sound like I really mean it? And I said, well, you've got to mean it. That's probably the best way to do it. You can't go into it with a kind of pre-rehearsed whatever. 
And, and you know, kind of goes back to something you said earlier about tech selection. I mean, we tell the kids to select, yeah. the, select the ones you love for paper too, because you have to write about it with passion. And if you have yeah. the passion, you're much more likely to generate a meaningful conclusion, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And again, I am caveating everything with much easier to do with literature than it can be to do with, you know, uh, Langlet SL, where you've only got four. But I would say um, something I've noticed, and I don't know if you noticed it as, as markers of paper, um, paper two, but the, the, even with paper one, there tended to be this um, thing where um, I, I feel like it was students that were coming from the time zone where like the US um, uh, would have been writing. And a lot of them started with, um, paper, this is paper one, they started with sentences in the introduction that was a hook, I suppose you would call it. So it's like a broad statement about the topic of that particular uh, passage for paper one. Now, I can kind of understand why you would do it with paper two, because you could, you know, you could be a bit more specific in regards to the theme that you've chosen. But how often have you come across that either with paper one or paper two, where it's it's a first sentence that is designed to be this kind of I don't know. Like it, it, I think it's doing the same thing as what we've talked about here. It's offering further implications, but it nine times out of ten, it doesn't hit the mark for me. And I don't know if it's just a paper one thing or or what. Yeah, it's yeah. a great question, uh, Dave. Take it. Yeah, no, I do think that kids are are def definitely in North America taught to have that sort of general mm -hmm. when they start a paper. If they if they do a good job and they actually spend some time critically thinking about what is what is maybe the subtext of this text I'm reading or what is kind of a deeper idea that's in this text that I've read? Can I connect with it in some creative way instead of launching into, you know, I, I think sometimes kids just write in, in text one, you know, an advertisement by, you know, Apple, you know, yeah. company, blah, blah. And that, that to me is not a very, it's not a very engaging way to start the paper. So I think they're trying to, you got to, in some ways, I compliment a student that tries to find an engaging way mm -hmm. to give their paper a little bit of personality and voice. And it's an opportunity for some critical thinking. So if it's done well, then I think that's that's a really nice way to start a paper. If it's not done well, like you said, it sounds trite and kind of forced. Um, and I, the, I much, I tell kids, you know, if you're not, if you're going to write a hook, make sure it's engaging and has some originality and shows some deep thinking. And, Otherwise, and it has it. an eye on the topic. That's what yeah. Dave's is, is mm. as it's kids. Hey, you can put in a hook, but you better keep your eye on the topic so you're not delivering something trite. Because the goal, as Dave said, is to start the paper with some voice and critical engagement. And, and to be frank, it really breaks up the stack for an examiner when you're reading 40 texts or 40 papers in a row that start with text one is an advertisement published by. And then you see a paper that shows up with an engaging hook. It, it, it perks mm -hmm. you up as an examiner. Yeah. I think it, it kind of makes you more engaged with that actual piece of work. I'd agree with that, I think. But ironically, I mean, because I'm marking time zone one, they all have hooks. And it's just because <laughs> it's, it's, it's become like who has the better hook of all the hooks. And it's I think, again, I don't know, eight caveat of the day. I, I mark paper one for literature. And I think it's much harder to do that in like, uh, you know, a tiny extract of a bigger piece as opposed to something which is a language text where you can really sort of, you know, if it's if it's a travel blog or something like that, how hard is it just to reel off something like um, a famous person once said, travel broadens the mind. And this is certainly the case with blah, blah, blah. Much harder to do it when it's a monologue from a, 
you know, an, a play from the 1970s that you've never heard. <laughs> yeah, you don't have the context or picture. So yeah, hard. Yeah. So good on them for trying. Um, but okay. Anyway, I, that was a big digression, but, um, yeah, thank you very much for that. What, um, so this, again, this goes back to the post, but this is something that we had lots of conversations about as a department. And I think as a profession, uh, in Hong Kong, like English teachers, IB, English A teachers, um, where are the telltale signs for you guys that an essay has been learned off by heart and therefore forced onto one of the questions provided? Uh, well, I think the biggest telltale sign is just not using the wording of the question in the paper where you mm -hmm. can just see that they're, yeah, that they're, they're wanting to share all this knowledge, but the knowledge that they're sharing is not relevant to the question and just not using that wording of the question is the telltale sign right away. It's like, are they really letting the question drive their paper? Um, and I think actually, to be honest, in my, the recent, um, my recent examining, I did a lot of paper twos this year. Um, I noticed that the kids were much more on point with the question than they ever have been. This was always, a. Uh, a sticking point in the old in the old course with that was like in response to the question or it was, it was something like response to the question was one of the criteria and i i yeah. noticed kids have been taught well to like hey your job's to answer the question you need to use the wording of the question and you're probably in your topic sentence that needs to drive your thinking so I saw much more command of the question this year than in the past but that to me is like the telltale sign is that they're yeah, they're forcing it. And also the other thing that's a telltale sign is they're they're not comparing and contrasting. Because if they're comparing and contrasting in relation to the question, that just shows they're really doing their job. But if they're just focusing on the one text and giving us all this information, then I think that again is um just not not really doing the task. Yeah. Or another thing, Chris, you might see is, you know, later into the response, you might see a pair of paragraphs that are strong, but you notice that they suddenly have deviated from the initial question seemingly. Yeah it has run out of content so you almost see like a gap in logic like hey this is interesting but you're way off from where you started so mm. i think that's sort of an indication that they've prepared which is great we want them to prepare but they're kind of you know reaching back for a previous paper that they've written and they deviate a bit from the question mm. so as dave said i think you see those gaps in logic sometimes sort of at the midway point if a student is running out of ideas how would you typically kind of when it gets to the end of the course and and you guys have obviously got your own classes and this kind of thing what kind of conversations are you having around revision and things like that would you typically and again it depends on hlsl lit lang lit do you find that students are going in there roughly with two texts in their head that they want to discuss that they've already mapped out in terms of like well that character goes well with that character that relationship maps well with that relationship that motif goes well with that motif what what are you advising in terms of the schema in their head that they're going in with like, i don't think anyone i think everyone now is surely coming around to the idea that getting them to rehearse and learn reams of quotes probably isn't a great idea um but in terms of what they're going into the exam with, whatever kind of amorphous blob of knowledge it is in their mind. Typically, what what do you think students in your classes are going in there with in terms of like their preparation? Yeah, I get, I'll, I'll start. And then Andrew's eager to share. He has some ideas too. Mm -hmm. I think I think I, I definitely feel like studying signature moves by the author and having a really strong command of signature moves is really important. Mm -hmm. I also like students to. 
identify key moments in the text that they can draw from and actually like reread those key moments and really like study those and think deeply mm-hmm. like, in specific ways how those moments now again you're not trying to memorize quotes from those moments but you're really thinking about like where you know what 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 are the maybe five moments in my novel that really stand out to me that these are powerful these are laden with lots of rich authorial choices that I can talk about and I can use these moments in many different answers and then I guess the other thing is just like you said, just thinking comparatively before they walk in the exam and doing a lot of that comparative work in groups or, you know, um, on their own, that's another way to just walk in with a lot of rich ideas brewing in your head that you've already worked out a lot of these rich ideas. Yeah. Building on what David has said is we, we spend quite a bit of time where, you know, once they've sort of chosen their five or six key moments, critical moments that, you know, this is where the conflict resonates. This is the red, like no matter what question mm-hmm. they get, they're probably going to zero in on these moments. Uh, and then having kids just go through question series of questions that either they've generated or we've generated a lot of collaboration, a lot of group outlining, writing group papers, uh, just really thinking about how they'd handle different questions. I mean, if the, as you said, if we're noticing a trend toward the shift to the thematic, we can just fire off infinite themes at them and they can sort of have already done a lot of this thinking and, and manipulation of ideas prior to walking into the exam. And hopefully uh, one of those themes or a, a derivative of that theme shows up and they've actually kind of gone through that thinking process before. Mm, 100%, yeah. So in, in in terms of like signature moves, would, it, would an example of that be... Um, like Lorraine Hansbury has like very, very prose-like stage directions. Is that like a good example of a signature yeah, move? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think that that's a that's a great one. And then you can you can point to a particular scene perhaps that's being that, that mm-hmm. you can draw from as evidence. Um thinking about like Arundhati Roy, the way she uses kind of childlike diction to kind of capture the childlike perspective. That links nicely to characterization. Yeah. Right? So- or like the use of like an intertext or an illusion that's like drawn throughout the text. Um, those are really like fun to talk about. And they're really they're interesting because they have a lot of rich connections, right? So um, yeah, just to, just to be thinking about like, you know, Tim O'Brien's things they carry, the way he like uses different narrative perspectives um, to to kind of sh- add variety to his stories, but for all for different purposes. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Or the way he has, you know, the long winding sentences. Yes, that sentence level with analysis, but he does it throughout the text. So that's an interesting yeah. thing. Well, right. So I think that's what we mean by signature moves. Yeah, or like, nonlinear structure and yeah, the way like, that's like used to... Sure, other authors do it, but we notice it's pretty prominent with you know this particular author. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of my last question, um, originally it was what should we all be doing more of on a formative assessment level to prepare students for this paper? But on reflection, I suppose there's two kind of parts to that. Number one, what should we be? What would you advise doing from like let's say the inception of the course, the beginning of what I would call year twelve? to you know the end of year 12 let's say so whether it's lang lit or lit what are you doing on a formative level in in the early part or the early the the, the first half of the course to get ready for paper two i think a lot of like this academic paragraph writing and just having mm-hmm. kids get used to talking about you know having those strong topic sentences having rich ideas in their topic sentences 
uh, talking about author craft on a deep level. And like you like really thinking about implications too, and trying to use some of that language in their writing, just starting on a paragraph level is something that's nice to like look at and practice in class. You can assess it fairly quickly. You can give the mm. kids a feedback. They can give each other feedback. So you're not looking at a, you know, a, an 80 minute response to a, you know, an in-class essay, you're actually taking it down to the paragraph level. That's like something I do like early on with the year, year ones to get them used to, this is the type of analytical writing that you're going to put together, you know, on, in a longer response practices on the paragraph level. Yeah, we do that, you know, with the with the IO as well. I mean, structurally the 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 skill set is very much the same, you know, rich idea, evidence, authorial choice and, and implications. And I think, you know, we know that having students draw conclusions and reach for further implications is important. So, you know, we have a range of sentence stems that we encourage kids to put in. Uh so we, you know, early on in the course we're looking, you know, the re, you know we can infer that it can be implied that you know we we want to see that skill develop early so by the time they get to paper two or paper one at the end of year two they've always been trained to to think about that that just becomes a a part of every paragraph that's kind of how we approach that that's cool and then um, as we get towards the sort of business end of the course where I mean I'm in a situation now where I think I've taught six or seven of the lit texts and they all know they've got three left and it's I almost see it as my responsibility to talk them out of or convince them not to do one of the two texts that they've set their heart on um because we've still got three texts to do and i could use them as like paper one practice and stuff but i do genuinely want to see if i can you know uh shift one of their uh seemingly concrete choices for paper two um that they've already chosen but no kind of like you know uh, insistence from me i haven't asked them to sort of select which ones they want to do um what are you doing at the business end of things once you've taught all the texts or you've near enough taught all the texts and you're, you're gearing them up maybe four or five six weeks out from the uh the exams oh well i i think uh a lot of practice planning and like group group planning of, of papers mm -hmm. is really i think essential like andrew just said earlier i think also just doing doing that um, that chart work. We like we like having kids uh, produce charts where they're thinking comparatively and finding those comparative points and brainstorming together. So not not giving that to them, have them wrestle with it and work on those things. I think you can leverage um, artificial intelligence a little bit with ChatGPT and have them sort of think about ways that they can produce their own study guides and like encourage them to kind of explore in that way too. That's a, a good way to expand knowledge. Also thinking about that collaborative aspect that David's referring to, you know, if kids have, have kind of wrestled with the question, they've written a thesis and, you know, okay, you take the intro, I'll take body one, you take body two, et cetera. We, we like to have, and that usually generates maybe four or five or six papers from that class period. We love to have the kids score each other's papers, you know, group yeah. one, you're going to group two and, and that, you know, you're going to evaluate their paper and then just having them go through the different criteria and, and really it helps them internalize and gives them a better sense of what they need to do in their own individual writing. You know, again, I'm sure this is stuff you're doing as well, Chris, you know, uh, we just really, we want the kids getting fielding tons of questions and doing lots of writing and thinking. Uh, and Dave and I are more just, you know, we're, we're supporting answers at that point. We're not, we're not writing. We're not talking much. We're, we're supporting the development of their thinking. Yeah. Yeah. 
one last thing I do that we do uh, often is just, uh, you know, close the computers, close the screens, see what you have in your brain without, yeah. you know, no assistance. So can you the walkthrough? Can you walk through this novel and can you recall like what's what's going on in this novel? Like what from beginning to end? What where are the gaps? What are you missing? And then see if they can actually like walk through the text and do a like an overview of what the text you know um, covers. Or if it's a play, think about okay, you've got three acts in this play. What's going on in Act One? Can you talk about that? Well, what are some details? About act one, scene one, scene two, scene three. You got to yeah. know the text. So how much do you really know from the text without without actually looking at anything? Because at the end of the day, they're going to walk in. They're going to be like. They're going to have nothing. So they're going to be, you know, they, they have to be able to draw from what's in their brain. And so that's, that's a way to kind of instill confidence, but also maybe to, to also to, to, uh, you know, keep them from having, you know, false confidence say, Hey, do you, do you really know this text on a deep level? Can you answer some questions about it? That, that is something I try to do as we get further along. Particularly with the uh -huh, Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Just keep it fun and engaging just to show I think when the kids see that this is a fun process you know, this is not life or death. Let, let's talk about these texts and why we chose them and, and um, you know, what how they compare and those kinds of things. Like, get them excited for, like, yeah. the challenge of paper two. I think if you walked into either of our classrooms during paper two revision, you'd, you'd, be, you'd see a lot of excitement. You know, there are kids smiling and drilling deep into text and really thinking deeply about, about what, you know, how, how they can answer these tough questions about texts that they care about. A hundred percent. I do. I must admit, I, I I enjoy it more the discussions around paper two than talking about paper one, which which can be um, obviously by its nature, it's a lot more unpredictable. But I think, um, yeah, get get the, the the discussions between. I think it's really important coming back to. I mean, again, mentioning Antigone. I I start the course with Antigone, and it's a very popular text for I don't know a third, maybe fifty percent of the the kids. But we did it two years ago by the time nearly two years ago by the time they write the exam do they really remember which of the brothers got a funeral and which of them was like <laughs> yeah. to, and do they remember yeah. how to you know spell a tiercles and things like that it's, it's tricky so I, I i i'm fully on board with the idea of close the laptops get the whiteboard out in in you know see if you can team up with other people who are doing the same text and remember these things i think it's yeah it's a great it's a great process yeah um yeah well um the, the the last thing that remains for me to say is just thank you very much chaps for uh giving up your time um uh, uh during what is we're recording during a holiday it's very sunny in hong kong i'm sure it's very sunny in thailand as well and we're here indoors talking about paper too um but <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's but it's it's very very worthwhile not to just uh, not for us but uh obviously for your audience um uh and and the kids who kind of rely on us to 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 guide them and give them advice so thank you very much for all your output that you've done over the past few years it's fantastic stuff arguably the best out there uh the best in my opinion and yeah thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to me today yeah, Chris, thank you. We uh, we love what you do with the podcast. Uh, we we send our kids your Persepolis videos when we're teaching Persepolis, you know. So we we appreciate what you've done as well. So thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Really, uh, it's a yeah, shot in the arm to talk to you. It's great. <laughs>